Today's video was recorded on May 24, 2022, and this is the 17th in our series through the book of Exodus. Now, this video is part two of our previous lesson, The Lord is Our Banner. So in today's video, we'll start with a short review of our previous lesson. So in that lesson, we covered Moses raising his hands in the air while the Israelites are battling with the Amalekites that's found in Exodus 17. And then after they win the battle, Moses creates an altar and names it, The Lord is Our Banner. So in the previous lesson, we talked about what does that mean that Moses names this altar, The Lord is Our Banner. What's the meaning of banner? And then what we're going to do today is we're going to take that concept from Moses raising his hands, and we're going to bring that all the way through the Bible up to Jesus. So we're going to see today that everyone needs a banner. And the banner is there to focus our spiritual vision upward. And it leads us through the deserts and the difficulties in our lives. And Jesus is, in fact, that banner. And we'll see today how Jesus claims a prophecy from Isaiah that the Messiah will be a banner for all the nations. He claims that for himself as the one being raised up to point to the God who provides the power that we need in our lives. So when we have a banner to lift our gaze from the mundane of the world, we begin a spiritual journey upward towards our ultimate goal of growing or transforming into the image of Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson, which is part two of The Lord is Our Banner, and that it helps you lift your sights towards Jesus and keep your spiritual focus on Him as we journey through the difficulties of this lifetime. Okay, so we are... This is going to be The Lord is My Banner, part two. Probably should have put a part two up there. Okay, so The Lord, My Banner, Part 2, the painting that I chose, boy, there's no lack of options when it comes to that uh, serpent, the bronze serpent on a pole. Artists have been trying to recreate that for thousands of years, so I surfed through like about a hundred different photos. So this is just one, the artist Sebastian Bourdon. 1653 or 1654 is when he painted that Moses on the brazen serpent. And that will be the next place that we find the word Ness is in that story of the bronze serpent. Okay, so the Lord my banner, or the Lord Nessi. And this is number 17 as we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And what I want to start out with today is a just a very quick review. I basically put about five or six bullet points from last week. So last week, or sorry, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago was part one. And the whole point of going through this exercise uh, starts with this story where Moses goes up on a hill. There's a battle happening between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And the Bible says that Moses raised his staff into the air, his hand. He had the staff of God. And when Moses' hands were up, they were winning. When Moses' hands were down, they were losing. And then it says that when the battle was over, Moses built an altar 
And Exodus 17, 15 says, he built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. And so part of the question we're asking is, A, what's going on in that story with the raising of the arms and the winning and the losing? Because that seems a little bit strange. But then why name it, the Lord is my banner? What does that mean? And the Hebrew word there, nisi, so we're going to be talking about a Hebrew ness is singular. That's the noun. If you want to say my banner, nisi. So that's the whole thing that we were going, we were looking at. So last week we talked, or two weeks ago, we talked about this Hebrew word ness that shows up. It means our Bible often translates it banner in some places, sometimes signal. Uh, we'll see tonight, pole is another one. So it is, uh, it's not only the standard like a flag or an ensign like the flag, but it's the pole that holds up the flag. So standard ensign banner. Tonight we'll see pole, sign, and it's the entire thing. It's not just the piece of cloth or not just the thing that's mounted on the top, but it's the entire thing that's raised up. Now, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word ness is believed to come from a word that means something like conspicuous, conspicuously displayed. So it's raised up, and when it's raised up, you can't miss it. And, you know, we can all think of something in the Bible that has been lifted up that you simply can't miss. And that's, this concept is going to run throughout the entire Bible, but that's related at least to that noun. In modern Hebrew, now not biblical, but modern, the word ness is miracle. And a miracle is something that stands out, gets everybody's attention. That's ness. It's, it's, uh, so they've taken it beyond the, the biblical to use, to use for the word miracle. Okay, so where did this whole thing start? Well, as we mentioned last, or two weeks ago, that, you know, Moses and the Israelites are maybe 20 days out of Egypt, 25 days. Everything they know comes out of Egypt. Well, so does this idea of the ness or a standard. It comes out of Egyptian context. And it's really important to know because scholars don't always take what's written in, the, in say, Exodus and say, where was it in Egypt? But the more people study Egypt, the more they say, I think we should be looking there when it comes to Exodus. So Egyptian context. In Egypt, the idea of a standard, a banner, an ensign was a really big deal. And you can see this is the temple at Karnak, and those insets into the walls each held a banner. And you'll find paintings of Egypt, you'll see these banners in the background as artists are putting together what it might have looked like. And these banners take on their religious significance. Um, you raise the flag of your god, which raises your sights up to the god, 
And then in their theological musings, I guess you could say, the banners held the power of God itself, or the God, whichever God it was, and there are depictions of the banners, so a flagpole with arms, fighting the battle for Egypt. So they, they personify this uh, idea of the flag, and it became worshipped, an object of worship. And it's similar to even, say, our American flag. That American flag is much more than red, white, and blue on a piece of cloth. It's got tremendous psychological power. And people raise our flag up, and it becomes an object of reverence, and people will fight and die for that piece of flag. So it's, uh, there's a tremendous psychological power in this. So in Egypt, the standard in Hebrew, the word nest, it points to the God. It causes you to look up. It says, our God is, we're now focusing on our God. I can see our God, and our God's going to lead the way. So it represents the God, and in their minds, was actually imbued with the power of a God. And it's very much like an icon, Christian icon, or as we'll see later, the Jews took the snake, the bronze snake, and said, we're going to now worship the piece of bronze. And that gets smashed, we'll find out in Second Kings, because, no, don't worship the piece of bronze, worship the God who healed you through that whole thing. Not to get into the idea of too much of icons, but that's exactly what is going on in the Bible around that. So, okay, that was the big deal. This, all those Israelites understand this. So when Moses says, God is our banner, he's switching it. God is um, what we would call today cultural appropriation. He's taking Egyptian culture, and he's going to switch it around and say, now I'm the God, I'm your banner. Raise me up, or when you raise me up, it points to me. Okay, so God's going to steal that from Egypt and then use it for his own, to communicate to the Israelites. All right, so that was the main one. It comes right out of Egypt. The second thing we talked about is there's phenomenological power and psychological power of the standards. And the Egyptians are not ignorant of how human beings react, just like we raise up our American flag. Well, they recognize that with their flags, that there's something going on. So they would raise these flags way up in the air so that you can always look up and see your God wherever you are. That's the whole point. And so what we would say is, for a human being, we're sitting on the world and God is always up there. That's where goodness and order, structure and all of that. The Egyptians know that if you're going down to the underworld, that's where all the chaos is. And so you sit, and if you're going to depict where your God is, you raise a pole way up in the air. And now, instead of your sights being flat, say, looking at earthly things, now your sights are now raised up. And so the banner causes you to look up. It's a posture of worship where even your whole, your whole bo mind, body, spirit are engaging in this religious thing to cause you to move in a certain direction. And last week, we said, well, 
That's how we build our churches, right? When you walk into the sanctuary, your gaze is immediately taken in an upward direction. You go to the great cathedrals. You know, if you were to walk into a, say, hey, we're going into a church, but you have to go down these stairs into a basement and it's a really crouched, it doesn't feel the same, right? You, you walk into a church, you want to have this gaze upwards and it, it um, puts you in that position, the posture of worship. And that's exactly what they're trying to do in a church like this. They didn't want to spend the money to build those high ceilings for nothing. They know exactly what they're doing. So all of that said, when Moses then, they're fighting a battle. And this, so the spiritual lesson that we can pull out of this is we're all on a spiritual journey. As God pulls you out into the chaotic desert, there's going to be battles to be fought. And where do you want your focus when you're fighting earthly battles? Well, you got to raise them up, and it's real hard to do. And we, we feel like, well, I need to take control and figure it out, and I'll be the one in charge. And God's like, no, 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 don't do that. Just keep your sights on me, and I'll guide you just like that Nez in the desert. I'll guide you along the path, and I'll fight your battles with you. But you got to be looking at me. And it's real easy to forget that. This is what seems to be going on. That when Moses raises his hands, he's point, he becomes the nest. The, he becomes the banner himself, in a way, pointing up to God. They see Moses, remember God who gives them their power. They win the battle. That's the most common interpretation. And so if you look on your sheet, I have one rabbinic interpretation. So this would be sometime around the first century. One of the writings uh, that I put on your handout is called The uh, Wisdom of Solomon, or just called Wisdom, and that's an intertestamental book. So we know that this idea of what was happening with Moses was common uh, around the time of Jesus. So the rabbinic interpretation goes like this. The rabbis say, did the hands of Moses make war when he raised them or break war when he lowered them? No, rather, the verse comes to tell you that as long as the Jewish people turn their eyes upward, that's what the Nez is doing, right? Now, turning your eyes upward is a figure of speech that says we direct our hearts, we direct our spirit, we direct our being upwards to God. It's not just the physical lifting, but the physical lifting helps us. That's why the church is tall and you have a cross on the front that raises your eyes. So it says, when they turned their eyes upward and subjected their hearts to their Father in heaven, they prevailed. But when they didn't, they fell. So that's the common uh, interpretation from around the first century. So where do we, what did we see from this? It's a conspicuous Something is lifted up that you cannot miss. Comes right out of Egypt, out of the Egyptian context, as God uh, culturally appropriated their standards. It orients you upwards. It points up towards God, and that it's the power of God, not simply the staff, that's going to cause the winning and losing. And we'll see the same thing in the serpent on the staff. All right, that's all in that one little, and there's even there's more than that in that one little 
story about the of getting uh, the battle taking place with the Amalekites. There's so many little lessons to be learned in this six or eight sentences in the book of Exodus, but it's a it begins something a thread that's going to go all the way through the Bible, and we'll see tonight ends up with Jesus, and even Paul is going to take on this uh, this concept and help direct our attention upwards. So that was review. Now what I want you to do is we're going to go to Numbers 21, because this is the very next time we find the word ness. And most of our modern focus, or even of the church, has been on the snake. What's going on with the snake? And there's a lot there, because there's a lot from Egypt that had to do with snakes and healing power, and snakes were seen to resurrect themselves every year because they would shed their skin. And um, So there's a, there is a lot in the snake symbolism, but we miss the part that it's also going to be called a ness. So we're going to see, well, we're not going to see it. Let me tell you the context, right? Uh, God's taking him around. He's, he's, you know how every once in a while you're driving somewhere and then it seems like you're lost. So you could just say, hey, we're taking the long way around. That's what God's going to do. He's going to take them a long way around. And because he's taking them the long way around, they're going to start to grumble. And then God says, oh yeah, you're going to grumble against me. You've been, I've been following me for 40 years. I'll send fiery serpents towards you. Get your attention. And there's all different ways we could go about this, but if we look at verse 4, so Numbers 21, verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. Are we there yet? I guess that would be the main question. Just like when you put the kids in the car, how long is it going to take before we get there? Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You could see how grateful they are for God providing for them. So what does God do? He says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And of course, that got their attention. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Okay? Now notice, God doesn't take away the serpents, but he gives them something that's going to orient their spiritual sight. So it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And the word there, well, hold on. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And the word for pole, ness. So we have the same concept going on. Make a ness. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the Ness. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, immediately, you have 
a thousand questions, right? The text in Exodus does this a lot. Very little detail of what's going on or what does it mean. And so then for the next 3,000 years, we all argue about exactly what it means. But what we'll see, and this is my footnote, every interpretation of this story is exactly what we've been saying. It's the pointer to God. The Book of Wisdom says it wasn't what they saw on the pole that healed them, but it was the Savior from heaven, God, that provided the healing. That, that, was, that writing is pre-Jesus. So we see the same thing, but it's the same concept of the Nez coming through. And that's what, if you can connect the word Nez, you can start to see how these things are uh, fitting together. So that's the one, that's the next one we see. And same rabbinic interpretation that we had with Moses. This one I also put on your handout just to make sure you had it. It says, similarly, this is rabbinic interpretation. The verse states, make for yourself a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. Once again, may it be asked, did the serpent kill or did the serpent preserve life? Rather, when the Jewish people turned their eyes upward, there's the nez aspect of it, and subjected their hearts to their Father in heaven, they were healed, but if not, they rotted from their snake bites. Okay, so that is uh, just an example of the interpretation that we've been talking about. Now, real quick, don't turn there. I think I put this on your handout. Um, I just want to show you the compulsion, uh, you know, coming out of Egypt this, and the Egyptians worshiped the standard as a god itself, as if the standard held the power of God. And what do, they, what do they do with the bronze snake? Well, they do the same thing. And so what we learn in 2 Kings is that King Hezekiah comes into power, and he's a reformer. He's going to bring back the, uh, the, the proper temple worship, and he's going to get rid of all the false idols. And so what it says here is he removed the high places, he broke the pillars down and cut down the Asherah poles. Those are the, the poles that they worshipped in, Can in uh, Canaan. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. So you can see they held on to that bronze serpent. This is 700 years later. And they've been keeping that as an object of worship. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan, which actually sounds a lot like the word bronze. It's the word bronze and the word snake sound similar, and that's what that word sounds like, bronze snake. Anyways, my point is, you know, they left Egypt. Yes, we see God, but they fall right back into their old habits and the old ways of falsely worshiping other gods, and God has to constantly correct them to keep their, keep their focus on him. Okay, now turn your sheet over, because now it's going to start getting good for us Christians, because now we're going to get a messianic prophecy. And this is really, it's one of the great chapters of Isaiah. So chapter 11 in Isaiah, if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 11. And chapter 11, of course, widely recognized 
even in Jesus' day, as messianic in nature. So look at Isaiah uh, 11, and it's verse 1. So as it starts out, there's going to be a day where a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? David's father. So it's telling you there's something that's going to come out of the line of David. And we know from the promises made to David that there's one day going to be a king that's going to reign. There's a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. It's out of his line. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now this this is where we get into, aha, now we're talking Messiah. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that's very similar to Isaiah 61 when Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then today, this has been fulfilled. And that spirit of the Lord will rest on him to the Jewish mind, Messiah. So the whole Isaiah 11 is messianic. Now look at verse 10. Of course, we know the rest. I mean, when, if between verse 2 and 10 is, you know, the, the lion will die, lie down with the lamb and the child will play by the, the viper's pit and the, the cow and the lion will eat straw together and all of that, you know, the, the, the peace that will happen when the Messiah comes. So verse 10, though, now it switches. There's a little switch. And a lot of times your Bibles will show that because it puts it in a paragraph. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, that's of course the, the Messiah, will stand as a banner or Hebrew word, Ness. Ah, the Messiah is lifted up in a conspicuous manner and everybody's going to see him. You can't miss it. Right? So for the peoples, now peoples there, probably Israel. Then it says the nations, that's Goyim, will rally to him. The whole world is going to see this nest lifted up and his resting place will be glorious. So there's the first time it mentions it. Now look at verse 11. I just want to point something out. There's a theme in the Gospels about another type of exodus. They're, they're comparing Jesus to Moses. Jesus is going to lead them out on another exodus. Well, part of that comes from this verse right here. Verse 11, it says, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time, and he's going to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. What was the first time that he re reached out his hand? The exodus. So there's going to be a day where he's going to reach out and pull the people out. And that's going to be underneath this banner of Messiah. But I just want to point out that when your New Testament writers are, are echoing Exodus, it's because they see there's a new Exodus happening, a bigger, more important Exodus. Okay, and then verse 12. Here, it'll repeat the part about the banner. He will raise a banner, Ness, for the nations and gather the exiles. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So that's the prophecy that they all understand to be pointing to Messiah, that the Messiah is going to gather everybody in. 
Okay. Now, Jesus is going to take that. Obviously, we recognize him being lifted up is that ness, is that banner. He's going to take that, though, and when he claims this prophecy, he's not going to use Isaiah. He's going to use the numbers one. And if we were, if we're, if he's talking to Nicodemus, he's talking in Hebrew, the word ness, you would automatically be able to connect. This doesn't happen many times in the Hebrew Bible. So that's how we're, that's what he's threading through. So now turn to John 3, and it's verse 14 and 15, because this is where we're going to really going to connect this in. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I don't want in any way to, for you to think that I'm diminishing anything about the power of healing, um, the, the, the imagery of the snake and the healing that happened in, in the wilderness and the healing that happens with Jesus. It doesn't diminish that at all. What I want to emphasize, though, is we miss the part about the nez, the banner. That him saying this right here connects through Isaiah, pulls in that prophecy and says, I'm now, Jesus is claiming to be that banner. He's claiming to do the same thing, the ness, that the banner did. So it's, um, he's going to be lifted up and he's going to say, when I'm exalted, right? Verse 15, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. When I'm lifted up, when I'm held up for the whole world, all the nations. And this is exactly what has happened, right? I mean, when the Christian, when, when after his death, resurrection, and ascension, the whole world got flipped upside down. And all the nations of the world now have these pointers going towards Israel and the center of the earth where Jesus was raised up. And it becomes this unbelievable thing where it's almost like you just can't avoid it. It's out there, and now you have to make a decision about it. Is Jesus the banner or not? What does he do? Well, one of his function is to say, look here. I've been raised up. Now look to the God who provides all of your strength and power and is the one who could raise me from the dead. And so it's uh, in that one little sentence, that's what the cross becomes is that banner pointing us. And when we're walking along in the desert of life and we need a nez, we need something that's raised up, it's Jesus that's raised up so that we raise our sights up and say, aha, now I, I, I can see it, right? And as long as I can focus my attention on Jesus, now he leads me through that, through the desert. So it's pretty amazing how this thread goes entirely through the Bible. And again, it doesn't diminish any other teachings about that, um, but if we miss the part about the Nez being at the banner, the one that's lifted up, and the rallying point, the object of hope, um, all of that is what Jesus becomes for us. And so, metaphorically, now we all can take that and walk through life raising Jesus up and keeping our focus on Him. So, okay, I want to finish tonight not just leaving it with the just what the Nez, but talk about some practical stuff. And this is what's going to lead us to the idea of the mountain of God next week as we go into Mount Sinai and the ascending nature of a spiritual journey. And last week, 
we looked at Colossians 3. So if you have Colossians 3, you can turn there. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Colossians 3. Because Paul, he wants the Colossians to be looking up, to turn their spiritual gaze upward. And so we talked last week about this idea. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you're seeking or you're being very intentional about what's looking out for the things above. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are here on earth. So notice what Paul's trying to do. Now that you're, this is not about us, this is not a salvation thing, not salvation. What do you do now that you're saved? We would call it the sanctification thing. Now that you're saved, what's your Christian walk supposed to look like? Well, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above. Focus your attention on those things that are above, not on the stuff from this earth. Because if you focus on the things from earth, you'll get lost in the, in, the, in the chaos. And then what I really want to show is he doesn't just leave it there. Paul then is going to take this and say, okay, I'm going to give you some instructions and give you some examples. But when he builds it, he builds it in an ascending manner. So I have something on your sheet that looks like a pyramid. And, you know, when we read our Bible, generally we're reading down the page. And often there's a structure inside the text. They're doing something. And in this case, even though we're reading down the page, the, the verses are actually ascending in nature. So that's what this pyramid is going to show you. And of course, what Paul wants you to do is he wants to put right at the top of that, the, the mountain or the top of that pyramid or whatever it is, that's where Jesus is going to be. That's where you set your focus. So all of your focus is on Jesus. And then from verse 5 upwards, it's going to be ascending in that direction. And so at some point, I'm just going to work off of the handout. At some point, go back and read Colossians again. And just notice how it's, he's moving you up the mountain. And we're going to move into this next week. What do we need to climb the mountain of God? What are the important pieces that... Well, definitely our world is missing. And what's the importance of that climb while we're in our walk with Jesus? So starting at verse 5, down at the bottom, he's ascending up. Verse, and then I have verse 8, verse 10, 12, 13, and 14. And he again gets to this kind of a pinnacle in a way. So I'm going to walk through this just a little bit to give you an idea. If you look in your Bible, verse 5, or you can just look at the, the, the handout, Paul starts out with, it's all of the base, you know, uh, bad behavior of this world. And he, he says in there, verse 5, put to death. Not just set aside, put this to death. What are you going to put to death? The lowest behavior. Take, I mean, not only take your mind off it, you need to get rid of that. And that is sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. This is, if, you, if you're still focused on Vegas, because you used to go to Vegas all the time, and you keep your focus there, forget it. You're never going to be able to ascend while going to Vegas, right? Because what happens in Vegas, you don't go to Vegas for purity's sake. 
people travel to Vegas because, you know, they're coveting something. They want, you know, all of the money and the greed and the idolatry. You need to cut that out. So it's like, put that to death. You can't ascend while hanging on to that. Then he goes up a little bit higher, verse 8. Now we're going we're gonna to talk about anger and wrath and malice and slander. Almost like James, it's, it's both Leviticus 19 and James, and talking about the power of the tongue. You need to learn to tame that tongue. Not only stop engaging in that other stuff, but now you got to focus on your emotions and your, uh, your language. And then he goes up another step. And he says, and then you got to put something on. So not just get rid of something, but you have to transform. You have to put on a new self. That's verse 10. You're being renewed. So we can see there's a transformation happening as you ascend the whole time, focusing on Jesus at the top, because it's Christ and Christ-likeness that you're ascending towards. The image of our creator. And so you can see that he's, He's moving you from this, or trying to move his audience up the mountain in a sense. And so we're going to talk next week. What do we need to do that? What are the areas of life that we need to attend to? And why is that so important um, to be climbing up this mountain? Then he says, of course, what are we going to put on? Well, compassion and kindness and humility. And you can see he's moving now. These are the positive virtues. These are the virtues that you should be practicing cultivating these virtues, humility and meekness, patience. How many people love to cultivate patience, right? Never pray for patience because God will give you something you have to be patient about. And of course, the whole goal is to reach love. Love is the unifying force at the top of that. That's where he's going to kind of peek out at his pyramid. And what I find so interesting is, if we clear this out a bit, the thing that comes why do we struggle trying to get from down here to loving our neighbor? We understand the commandment to love our neighbor. Why is it so difficult? Well, it's this one little pesky sentence in there about forgiveness. You can't love your neighbor if you don't know how to forgive, or you can't forgive, or you're not practicing. It's a virtue to cultivate the, rele the process of releasing uh, people to God. And saying, okay, I didn't like what they do, and that makes me upset, but I'm going to release that person to you, God. So forgiveness is right in there, and it's really cool how he kind of slides that in, because you can't obtain the loving, uh, loving your neighbor without the ability to forgive. So, okay, I think you can see that, the ascending nature of this, but it helps when you put it into a visual and then it gives us almost like a goal. Okay, well, I can work on those things as I move my way up. And then we'll talk about again next week why that's so important and how that uh, provides a, a, a blueprint for a spiritual journey. And because we need to do two things, and we'll talk next week about this. You need to have your spiritual aspect connected to God. So your, your mind, body, spirit, you need to do spiritual practices. And as you connect to God, the Holy Spirit, helps it that gives you the power to transform on the other side is cultivating character and that's christian character we all have weak spots and we need to find those weak spots and then we need to cultivate the character 
So that, just like Paul says, boy, I know what I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I just can't get myself to do it. Right? He's lacking the character to get himself to be able to get through what he wants to do. So we'll again we'll do that next week. So, okay, review. We're in Egypt. Yes, that's how this whole thing started. They're, they just came out of Egypt. Moses raises his hands on the hill. He's up on a hill. He's pointing to God. When they look at Moses, they know where their power comes from. They win the battle. Then we see it shows up again in the bronze snake. So the second time, now we're putting the, the bronze snake becomes the Nez. You look at the snake. It points you towards God. Philo, the uh, Jewish philosopher from the first century, says when they looked at the snake from their position of, you know, down on their knees, they could see God above the snake. That's how he terms it. And then uh, then we get Isaiah. Oh, yeah, the Messiah is going to be a Nez. And that leads us all the way to Jesus so that these are all connected as we're flowing through from the Old Testament to the new. It's the same concept. And then the hardest part for us is when we get into whatever battle we're in is we forget. We forget that letting go and focusing on God is more powerful than us trying to control the situation. So all through anything we're struggling with, release, 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 release. I release it to you, God. I release it to you. I release it to you. I release it to you. Let God handle the details and be accepting of things as they unfold. And of course, Jesus helps us focus our attention. All right, so that was the Lord, uh, my banner. And I think you can see how really cool that is, uh, that that flows all the way through the entire Bible, really brings the stories together in a way that most people, you'd almost never see it unless you know something about the Hebrew and the early interpretations of... uh, how they saw Moses and the snake, the serpent on the pole. So 